So we basically had to build all of the kind of bank account aggregation technology. So kind of like a plaid. And then we built the, the you know, personal finance app, like a mint. And then we built like a credit karma, like, you know, financial product marketplace. And it was over years and years and building like all of this like massively complex infrastructure. And actually uh, we, we ended up getting uh, an investment from credit karma and the founder, Ken, a little bit jokingly, you know, but, but he basically said like, you know, day one, I plugged into FICO scores. Day two, I plugged into, you know, like a, an ad network to, to distribute credit cards. And day three, I had revenue. <laughs> and so, you know, they, they were like, okay, well, it's, you know, for us, it's like one year, two years, three years. And for him, it's three days. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Fintech Leaders, a weekly podcast where we learn from today's global leaders in fintech business and beyond. Coming to you from New York City, I'm your host, Miguel Armasa. If you enjoyed this conversation, I encourage you to share it and please leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever you get your shows so more people can learn from it. My guest today is Ben Gleason, co-founder of Camino, a financial hub that powers the operations and growth of Brazilian startups and scale-ups with integrated finance products, services, and software. Camino is backed by Inspire Capital, GFC, Picus Flourish, QED, and Gilgamesh Ventures, among others. In this episode, we discuss the remarkable positive impact that fintech in Brazil has had in terms of financial inclusion and customer service, and why there's still a massive opportunity in the region. Ben started building his first startup, Guia Bolso, back in 2012. The Brazilian ecosystem was nascent and he encountered some crazy challenges, including a lawsuit that reached the Supreme Court. How did they overcome them and how was the industry back then? The inspiration for Camino and how they're helping entrepreneurs hit the ground running and start building much faster than ever before. Advice for entrepreneurs navigating a down market why he is so passionate to help female and underrepresented founders, and a lot more. Hope you enjoyed this inspiring conversation with Ben from Camino. Ben, welcome. We are here at Money 2020, a live recording of the FinTech Leaders Podcast. And Ben, you're joining us all the way from... Sao Paulo in Brazil. Amazing. But you're not from Sao Paulo. I'm not. Originally from uh, the exotic Madison, Wisconsin. <laughs> <laughs> how, how does a Wisconsin boy end up in, in Sao Paulo, Brazil? Uh, actually, I originally studied Spanish. I thought I'd end up somewhere in uh, Latam and then went to visit Rio when I was 20. And that was that. That's uh, <laughs> so I got Brazil. And uh, it worked out well because the market's a lot bigger there. So <laughs> Yeah. And... and so you fell in love with Latin America in general, in general which is Brazil. Yeah, yeah. But um, so let's talk about your journey. You you are a repeat fintech founder. There's not a lot of you in Latin America yet, but it's a growing number. Um, you have seen the Latin, not just fintech scene uh, evolve, but you've seen startups in general. Um, tell us about how you first got involved with startups in, in Latin America and Brazil um, and guide us through a little bit of that journey. Cool. Uh, yeah, so I uh, had, you know, gone to, gone to Warden and then I went out to Brazil initially with McKinsey uh, and was doing consulting. And, and, you know, at that time, it was all like private equity, banking, finance. And then 
you know, Lehman Brothers melted down and <laughs> things changed pretty quickly. And, and, you know, I really didn't have startups on my radar. There was not a whole lot of activity, you know, back then. Um, but I ended up uh, making a decision, kind of a, a leap of faith to join a friend uh, doing a, a first. It was a cloud-based point of sale startup and actually uh, launching it in the U.S. And the plan was then to bring it to Brazil. And in the U.S., I got some feedback that they didn't like, you know, MBAs and consultants. And I was like, oh, that, that sucks, you know, <laughs> um, given my background. And then uh, in, in 2011, I went to run Groupon in Brazil. And it was like this crazy, you know, hyper acceleration, uh, the fastest growing company also in Brazil. Um, and really the start of kind of the e- massive e-commerce boom. Um, and I think, you know, with Rocket Internet and everything else, it was kind of also the start of people starting you know, to think about leaving banking, leaving consulting and, and doing startups. So there's a whole, you know, generation of founders that you know, worked with me at Groupon that went out to found companies after that. Um, and then uh, after the IPO of Groupon, uh, we you know, wanted to go back and start something from scratch and um, you know, kind of landed on, on fintech before it existed even as a term uh, and, and you know, decided to do it with a, a friend uh, from McKinsey and, and wanted to do it in Brazil. We thought we could have a much bigger impact there, solve bigger problems, and, and you know, we have like a more differentiated profile. I think uh, we, we used to joke... Uh, you know, Brazil is famous for its bureaucracy. And, and so in the U.S., they often say, like, they love 22-year-old computer science uh, founders from, from Stanford. We said probably that kid couldn't even get a company open in Brazil, much <laughs> less run it. So, uh, you know, it was, it, you know, that was kind of the start of the journey as we were kind of like, you know, financial technology with fintech and quotes, trying to explain to people what it was. Um, and, and, you know, the, the rest is history. I guess that was kind of like the very start around 2012 when, you know, Creditas, Nubank started shortly thereafter, kind of the first generation of fintechs in, in Brazil. Do you think that fintech, by definition, fintech in Brazil is, um, is going to have a social impact, positive it, social yeah. impact? Yeah, I think it's, it's very clear, you know, how incredible the impact has been already. It's been, you know, in terms of financial inclusion, it's been, you know, very, very remarkable. And even something that I commented is, you know, I think that even the big banks have gotten better in terms of, you know, their digital apps and their kind of their services, more competitive pricing, you know, whereas in the past it was really terrible because there was no competition. They've been forced actually to improve as well. And I don't think you would have seen that without, you know, the new banks of the world coming in to, to compete with them. So I think there's already been a massive impact and I think there's still room for quite a bit more. And, and so let's talk about your first company, Bolso. The recruiting aspect, I'm sure, was challenging because this is 2012. Not a lot of people, there's a lot of talent, but... Very few people who spoke startup speak, right? Yeah. Um, how did you get around solving that? It was it was a huge challenge, actually. Um, and, and someone was asking me the other day, like, what was your you know initial growth strategy at Yabolso, and you know how did you build the team? And I was thinking back, and it's like, oh yeah, we hired an intern from a local university, like, don't figure it out, you know. And and now you can hire somebody who's done it, you know, three different times at, at different startups, and so it's just you know remarkable how much, you know, the market has evolved. And, and the other thing is that you couldn't, you know, you kind of got the talent that was left over after people had gone to consulting and banking and everything else. You know, people weren't, you know, really looking at startups as a, as a positive career step. And so I think that was a huge challenge. And the other thing was, you know, there really weren't like product people or, you know, so it's like the start, there's some CTOs, but they, nobody really knew product. And so uh, even today, that's, a, you know, it's a challenge, right? It's a huge scarcity. But, you know, back then, like, it was really, uh, I think, a massive challenge in terms of you know, delivering quality code and, and understanding consumers. And so we kind of, uh, you know, muddled our way through it in the beginning. Let's talk about fintech in Brazil. So today, everyone's talking about the central bank and how friendly it is towards fintech and how it's had a positive impact on the market. But 
how was your experience dealing with the ecosystem, including the regulator, but also everyone else, uh, early on, right? Well, did you have to do a lot of education? Did you have to overcome a lot of challenges? Yeah, it, it was uh, a massive challenge. I think even, you know, the investors in Brazil, for the most part, really didn't believe in a, in a you know, thesis of, of a, a startup taking on the banks in a way. Um, so we had a really hard time getting, you know, local investors interested. It was actually tended to be more, you know, kind of international investors who had seen what was happening in the U.S. and fintech and thought it could happen in Brazil. Uh, so that was, you know, one thing from the, the investor perspective. Um, once, you know, for Guia Bolsa, once we started to do the, the bank account aggregation and kind of build what now is called open banking, we were trying to get uh, from different law firms a legal opinion that was actually permitted to get bank data from consumers and nobody would give us a legal opinion. Um, people thought the central bank could try to shut us down because uh, there was a famous example previously of the central bank shutting down uh, an early kind of version of a digital finance company. Um, so we were you know, concerned about that. <laughs> the, the bank, you know, big bank lobby association is extremely powerful and they were you know, putting pressure on us. Um, and then finally, after we you know, announced, uh, I think it was our series B round, uh, Bradesco, which is you know, the, at the time the largest bank in Brazil, uh, they decided to sue us, <laughs> and basically, uh, it, you know, it, it's, it's it's funny now. It wasn't so funny at the time, but uh, they alleged that uh, we we probably weren't secure as a platform, that uh, we were getting data that we shouldn't have access to, and, and you know, most ironically, that we were being anti-competitive because we were trying to steal their customers. And so that was the, the premise of of their lawsuit. Uh, how did that evolve? Uh, tell, tell us a little yeah. bit about the lawsuit. Yeah, that, that was uh, very intense because, you know, we had to you know, go out and, and hire lawyers. And, and the first experience was that, you know, the banks hire, you know, dozens and dozens of law firms so that they're all represented by these law firms. And so everyone was conflicted. They couldn't even work with us. And so, like, we had to keep looking for somebody that, you know, somehow could, could work with us and, and finally found a, a firm. And then we had to you know, go through this process. Uh, all the decisions, you know, along the way, like the intermediate decisions were going against Bradesco. And they were appealing everything up to the Supreme Court. And so it's like every individual decision by the judge was questioned and, and then we would go up to the Supreme Court. So it's just like this drain of, of, of time and energy. But, you know, um, I think great for the ecosystem, you know, if for, for us, not, not uh, maybe so, so timely, but, you know, years later, actually, the, uh, the antitrust authority in Brazil started to investigate Bradesco because of this lawsuit in part. And actually, um, finally, Bradesco had to do a, a settle with the, the antitrust authority. So they got hit with a, like a, probably at the time, uh, $7 million fine. Uh, they were obligated to open APIs to, uh, to give us access to the bank data and, and obligated to, to drop the lawsuit. So finally we were vindicated, but uh, it was an intense uh, period there. It's, it's a little bit of the anti-fragile ecosystem, right? Totally. You, 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 you <laughs> suffer through, so others could flourish later on. Um, no and, and I'm sure that was a huge destruction. But the, the result has been very, very positive now. Uh, it sounds like you went through a lot of these challenges and because of that, once you had the opportunity to start building again, because you, you did sell Giab also, you are actually building a company that's going to help future entrepreneurs. Yeah, and, and I think that, you know, there, were, there were a couple of things that we kind of took away from that. So one was we did have a massive social impact. So we were able to help you know, literally you know, 6 million Brazilian consumers to manage their, their finances better. Um, so just seeing you know, how kind of like we got this massive viral growth at one point. We were number one on the App Store ahead of like WhatsApp and, and Facebook. So that was you know, shocking. But I think you know, Brazilians are, are very fast digital adopters. So that was cool. 
um, the central bank become very pro-innovation, pro, you know, kind of uh, competition. And, and so, you know, it, now it's considered one of the best central banks in the entire world in terms of the open banking regulation, rolling out picks instant payments. And so that's, you know, I think a great tailwind uh, that we were seeing. And then, um, you know, as we look at the ecosystem, how it's developed over the last 10 years, we see that now, you know, there's way more talent in the market. So, you know, very experienced founders, like great talent you can hire for your teams, a lot more capital at, you know, different stages coming in. Um, there's also a little bit more, you know, infrastructure, but still we felt like a lot of what we had suffered through in terms of financial, you know, just the, the financial infrastructure and the frictions around, you know, receiving money, you know, making payments as you're growing quickly. Uh, the banks still really don't understand that type of high growth profile. Uh, and there, you know, we, ha- we didn't find great solutions for that. And so... Um, now, you know, uh, launching Camino, we're really thinking about how do we solve kind of the frustrations that we went through that we felt still haven't been solved, even as the rest of the ecosystem has really evolved incredibly. And, and, and by the way, we're proud investors at, at Gilgamesh, uh, have, have to mention that. But um, there's also been a shift from the types of fintechs that were being built before, which is mostly B2C, and now you're seeing infrastructure and coming as one of those uh, you're seeing b2b solutions maybe tell us a bit about that and and it's it's definitely not just brazil it's i think globally that's the arc of evolution for fintech but let's zoom in on, on brazil yeah i think you know the b2c was was really natural in the beginning because consumers were so poorly served and, and there was you know a huge gap of, of you know completely un, unserved consumers but then also you know poorly served consumers there you know brazil had some of the highest interest rate spreads in the entire world and so you know, that's something that people could key in on and think about solving that better. Um, and, and the banks, you know, were basically had the branch network, which was their way to acquire customers. And so initially digital acquisition of, you know, end consumers was very cheap. And so, you know, we rode that wave and, and New Bank and others. Um, but at a certain point, there was a lot of competition in that market. The acquisition costs started to go up. Uh, and then I think that was part of what kind of made people shift over to think about, you know, are there B2B2C models where I'm distributing, you know, via employers or are there B2B models, which might make sense. And now, you know, finally, uh, even like a Camino, think about how can I be kind of the, the infrastructure layer to help other companies then do their, their end business. And, and, you know, there definitely wasn't scale for that 10 years ago. There, were, there wouldn't have really been any customers. Uh, whereas now, you know, it's a very vibrant ecosystem. You know, we're, we're able to work with early stage companies, later stage companies, you know, non-venture backed, um, but kind of, you know, all driving off of this like very strong digital growth across B2C, B2B and, and other uh, markets. And so, you know, I think that there's a ton of room for this to, still to grow. Uh, and it's something which, you know, there, increasingly there's going to need to be tools for these type of companies uh, as they are, you know, able to build bigger products and more complex products and, and go overseas and, and things like that, which you start to see from Brazil as well. So we are at Money 2020 and it's call it the Super Bowl of fintech. The reality is that most of the fintech companies here are from the U.S. There's still a huge contingent from Latin America, but still mostly U.S. When you compare the two ecosystems to, for you, what, what stands out? What are some of the similarities and then some of the differences? Yeah, I mean, one of the differences for, for, for Gib also, we basically had to build all of the kind of bank account aggregation technology, so kind of like a plaid, and then we built the the you know personal finance app like a mint and then we built like a credit karma like you know financial product marketplace and it was over years and years and building like all of this like massively complex infrastructure and actually uh, we we ended up getting uh, an investment from credit karma and the founder Ken a little bit jokingly you know but but he basically said like 
you know, day one, I plugged into FICO scores. Day two, I plugged into, you know, like a, an ad network to, to distribute credit cards. And day three, I had revenue. <laughs> and so, you know, they, they were like, okay, well, it's, you know, for us, it's like one year, two years, three years. And for him, it's three days. Uh, so, you know, definitely, I think the U.S. market is, is, is much easier in terms of, like, you know, plugging into different solutions, monetizing faster. There's an existing market. Um, but on the other hand, you know, extreme competition, right? So every time there's any idea that starts to appear on TechCrunch, you know, three other companies get founded. Uh, I think in, in Brazil and in LATAM, there's still a little bit more protection there. So there are these like, you know, the scooter companies or whatever that, that you know, probably have too much capital flooding to them. But for the most part, if you can get kind of a dominant position, most other investors won't be, found, you know, kind of funding the second and the third and the fourth challengers. And so you do have some time to kind of try to become a market leader. Yeah, in the U.S., it's almost like building a Lego and you just take the pieces from, from different providers. If, if you had the choice, you know, which one would you, would you pick in a perfect world? Because you are building your moat by yeah. building everything in-house, but it's, it's fucking hard. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and we, we, you know, we talked a lot with, with, you know, with, with David from Nubank, you know, Sergio from, from Creditas, and we all kind of went through this. And it's, you know, there are certain things that you build which are strategic and, and they are differentiators and, and maybe you want to build them in-house, but like, you know, having to build your own CRM system, having to build like, you know, everything, even non, you know, kind of strategic uh, systems. I think that, you know, makes it much, it takes longer, it's more expensive. So I think, you know, that's not ideal. And, and at that time, there just, there weren't alternatives for us. Um, very differently now with Camino, actually, one of kind of the, the base theses that we have is uh, building a hub where we're plugging in all the different partners. And so if we don't have to build it, we don't want to build it. We want to bring in the best of breed partner on that specific product and then, you know, really spend our time thinking, how do we kind of integrate all these different products? How do we create a seamless experience, kind of single point of contact where we leverage, you know, KYC data and we leverage, you know, the knowledge of what we have about the customers and what they need. Um, but, you know, if we don't have to build like a credit product, if we can find somebody out there that's doing it, that's awesome. Uh, and I think, you know, back you know, 10 years ago, there just wasn't and the banks wouldn't work with us. That was, you know, took years and years to build, you know, for, to convince banks to work with fintechs. And now that's becoming more common. So I think that has really opened up the ecosystem and hopefully, you know, also for LATAM will help companies kind of build bigger and better faster, right? So rather than taking 10 years to do what in the U.S. might take five years, you know, hopefully sooner, you know, we'll see like much faster growth paths. So Ben, I've told you that we have a good number of founders tuning in or aspiring founders, people who are about to take the step. Um, let's talk a little bit about building culture because you, I, I, I'm curious about how you had to adjust maybe your, your managerial style. Uh, you, you're, uh, first of all, you're from the U.S. Um, there are differences there. <laughs> and, and then, you know, you, um, you, you're building a culture from day zero, right? So what has been your approach? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, one thing, and also there are a lot of, you know, kind of foreign founders who are looking to move to Brazil or move to LATAM. Yeah. And um, one thing that I tell them is you can't go, like, think, okay, the U.S. is, like, the standard, and so I'm going to impose the standard, it won't work. And I do believe that once you understand both cultures, it's like a hybrid model actually is the best model. And so there are certain things where you need to be more objective. You need to kind of like, you know, we talk a lot about disagreeing commits, which is hard in, in Latin cultures. People don't like to disagree. They don't necessarily then want to commit to whatever was decided. Um, but on the other hand, the kind of the social, you know, cohesion within the startup and people, you know, really knowing each other and feeling like they're part of something, you know, I think is, is really cool to see. Um, but for us, you know, now as we're building, we have the additional challenge of, you know, essentially a hybrid, but really remote, you know, culture, because, you know, especially developers tend to, you know, they're, they're completely remote. And so how do you build, you know, really strong culture when people are not there, they don't really know each other that well. 
And I think, you know, the, the jury is still out on, on how well this is, is going to work. But as we, you know, kind of think about it, I think, you know, one of the things that I've realized is you have to look a lot at like the traits of people. So it's not just, you know, what's on their resume, you know, kind of what they've done, but it's also like, do they have the resilience? Are they people that seem committed to something? Have they overcome adversity before? Um, so you're trying to test for additional things and not just the hard skills. Um, and, so, you know, a little hit or miss, but I think, you know, you also as a repeat founder and, and I tell first time founders that they should really, you know, everyone says it, but few people do it is, you know, hire fast and fire fast. It, it really is important if you have, especially the cultural mis- mismatch, I think you can't allow that to, to fester. And so it's, you know, now all of us having <laughs> done this two or three or four times, like we're pretty quick to, to make those decisions. And, you know, hopefully that will uh, also help us to, you know, continue to ramp up faster. Is it still hard when you have to let go people? Yeah, I mean, it, it's because it's also very hard to hire, you know, so it's especially like developers and product people and data people and, you know, all these kind of like very, um, you know, still scarce positions. It's, it's very hard to hire, you know, so you're <laughs> you're worried about firing, um, you know, because it's also also hard to, to hire. Uh, and the other thing is make sure that the team understands, right? And, and you don't want to overshare, but you can't also give the impression that, you know, you're being unfair or something, so you have to, like, give some context. And so, you know, I think we're still, you know, figuring all that out, but definitely... Uh, uh, you know, and I would say that the other thing too, you know, kind of learning from Gia Bolso is that we, in the early days, because we did have like such a massive social impact, we were able to bring on people that were probably like better than we might've been able to afford otherwise, but they were like really dedicated to the mission. Um, but then when it was time to like, okay, now we have to make money, right? We have to like, we're a business. Um, some people are like, wait a minute, you know, I just, I'm here for the social impact. And so I also think like, you know, from day one, trying to make that very clear, like, okay, we want to have an impact. We want to do the right thing and help our customers. But also we need to be driven by, you know, you know financials and, and making money um, and try to do, you know, kind of juggle all those in parallel. I think that's super important, but it's a hard, you know, balance to get. How, how about uh, you've gone through two types of fundraising uh, environments or maybe more than two, yeah. <laughs> but uh, con- compare and contrast fundraising for Gia also versus fundraising for Camino. Yeah, it, it was crazy. I mean, for Gib also, we got like 60 no's uh, before we were able to get the seed round. And, and like, they weren't even real funds. There were only a handful of like true seed, you know, professional seed funds. And so we were, even the angels, like we had, you know, investment banker angels who wanted to do like a 40 page contract for an angel investment. Uh, and it was just, you know, there wasn't the stage funding at all. And so, um, you know, we kind of had to sell Brazil to the, you know, US VCs and then sell Brazil, then sell finance and then, you know, then Gib also. And nowadays, um, you know, in Camino, it's just unbelievable how many funds were, were looking. We had, we had, you know, in retrospect, we had great timing because we kind of closed December of, of last year. So we we're kind of right at the, the heights. But, uh, you know, we didn't have to explain Brazil. We didn't have to explain fintech. You know, we really could just talk about Camino and what we were building at Camino. And there was, you know, massive interest and, and you know, really strong pre-seed round that we were able to close. So, and, and you know, I think value add investors too. So it wasn't like, <laughs> it's the only investor who will give me money, so I'll take it. But it was like people, you know, that we wanted around the table that are going to add value going forward. You've mentioned social impact a number of times. Um, I know you care about this a lot, and you care about investing in the next generation of founders. Uh, maybe expand on that. Yeah. Um, so one, I'm extremely involved with Endeavor, and so I'm an Endeavor entrepreneur. I'm also on the uh, on the board of uh, Endeavor Entrepreneurs to kind of think about how do we keep improving the model uh, for other entrepreneurs. And so I do a lot of mentorship. Um, and then as I've been doing that, one of the things that I've started to see is it's still not a level playing field, right? And like, you know, people who are fortunate enough to go to top MBAs, they leave with a network with a lot of skills and everything else. And so they're already connected into investors. There's a lot of people that don't have that 
that benefits. So I've spent actually a lot more time recently uh, mentoring and investing in, you know, underrepresented founders, so women, minorities, um, also socioeconomic minorities. Uh, and I think that's where I can ha really have like a bigger impact to people that don't necessarily have the network yet, um, but are, have incredible stories, incredible skills that, you know, there's clearly overcome adversity. And so I think, you know, I would like to see that more. I'm challenging a lot of uh, VCs as well <laughs> to, to, you know, put their money where their mouth is. You know, everyone talks, talks to the game, but very few, you know, put the checks there. So uh, I hope that we'll continue to, to develop. And it's important to me, uh, you know, because I think that's the only way, like the best way in emerging markets, I believe, is to kind of change emerging markets is via startups and, and you know, companies that grow quickly, hire a lot of people, start to, you know, challenge the status quo. And so having more representative founders, you know, will be huge uh, to, to you know, solve many of the problems that still exist. Yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. And then and the numbers, I haven't seen the comparison between U.S. numbers and, and Latin American numbers, but um, that'll be interesting to see. Um, are you are you happy with the, with have you seen improvement? Are you happy with uh, kind of some of the shift in the last couple of years from VCs? Yeah, I think you know, and you, I start to get a sense of like the ones that are you know taking it seriously and so I'm able to funnel, you know, good founders to them. And, and, and as a VC, I think you get positive selection if you are, you know, looking for for this type of talent. And so, um, yeah, I have seen there, there's like increasingly groups of people that are, you know, really looking actively for that. And I think, you know, also it's, it's hard to found a company, right? And so, you know, the more you think people are going to support you, the more likely you are to do it. So hopefully, you know, more women and under, underrepresented founders will come in because they think there are people there that will, you know, support them along the way. So, um, you know, I think it's, it's huge. And, and, you know, I, I see other, some other founders doing it. I see some investors doing it. So it's, uh, it's the start, but, uh, you know, massive potential still. So Ben, uh, we're coming out of time, coming out of time. Um, how can people find you? How can people find out more about Camino? Um, perfect. Yeah. So Camino.com.br. Uh, we're initially focused on Brazil, basically helping startups and scale-ups, fast growth companies um, with everything from their financial and their banking stack to setting up the company, doing their FX, um, building the whole kind of financial hub uh, for the operations to support founders and, and CFOs. Um, so you know, definitely can, can go, to the, go to the site and you know, reach out to me on LinkedIn. Uh, happy to, to talk. I do a lot of, uh, of, of mentorship. And, and so you know, definitely uh, look forward to meeting people uh, who are listening. And uh, you know, thank you, Miguel, for the, the invite and for the, being an investor in, in Camino as well. Uh, of course. Uh, thanks for letting us. <laughs> All right. Thanks for tuning in. And I hope you enjoyed this episode with Ben Gleason, co-founder of Camino. If you want more interviews, make sure to subscribe, follow, and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever you get your shows. It helps and means a lot. And if you have any suggestions or thoughts about the show, please drop me a line on Twitter or LinkedIn. Signing off till next week. I'm your host, Miguel Armasa.